much to go before our Lord. We get to ask of Him, according to His will, all the desires of our hearts. Let us go before Him in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, by Your magnificent light, You allow us, O Lord, to come before You. We thank You, O Lord, for that opportunity. And so we now, as a congregation, pray together for the needs of the church. We, O Lord, begin by praying for the President of the United States and his administration. We pray, O Lord, that you would be gracious to President Biden and to his uh, Vice President. We pray, O Lord, that you would give them discernment, wisdom, that you'd grant them integrity in order to lead us well. And we pray, O Lord, that in matters by which they fail us, as our leaders often do, we pray that you would restrain their hand. We pray, O Lord, that by their rule, you would protect the proclamation and witness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout our land commonly. And that, O Lord, we could continue to gather in relative freedom to proclaim the truth in Christ, the one who came into this world to live a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, so that we ourselves today would not have hardened hearts, but proclaim Christ, Christ crucified to the ends of the earth. We pray, O Lord, that our country would continue to permit this great freedom, and that in that, it would continue in the current administration, but also the next. We pray also, O Lord, for the gospel to go out throughout the world. We think of the gospel in Bangladesh. We just prayed, O Lord, and thanked you for the relative freedom we have, we know that many countries in the, on this earth have very restrictive access to the gospel because of the governments that are over them. And Bangladesh is one of them. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd continue to protect our missionaries as they are there. And that as the gospel is preached, that the people of Bangladesh would have their hearts turned to Christ. So much so that their culture would turn to Christ and their government itself turn to Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, not for mere revival, but transformation of that society, that as the word goes forth through various ministers and ministries, that they will hear Christ, the true Christ. We also pray, O oh Lord, in that same sense, for the lost in our community. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the gospel truth that is within the churches within our community. We pray, O oh Lord, that you continue to preserve the church within the greater Edwardsville area, but that you use the churches in our community to preach to the lost. We know, O oh Lord, many who do not know you, whether they be our neighbors, our friends, family, those whom we work with, those whom we engage with in our various co-ops and civil society. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who do not know you. We pray that you would soften their hearts today. As we read in Hebrews, that today of those who hear his voice, that they would not harden their hearts, but that they would confess their sins to Christ, that they would not be like the Israelites in the wilderness, but they would be like that second generation, taking up the law of God into the promised land, coming to gather with your people to profess Christ. Use us, O Lord, as a congregation to, be, to bear witness about the light like John bore witness about the light just a few weeks ago. We also pray, O Lord, for our children's ministry. We pray for those who are young among us as they are learning to read and to write and various other common things within their school curriculums. We pray also, Lord, that they would come to know you fuller and better. 
that as they grow in stature and wisdom, that they also grow in a knowledge of the truth. And we pray, O oh Lord, for our various Sunday school teachers in this end. Pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to them, that as they teach these little ones, that, that their teaching would be receptive to them, and that you, O oh Lord, would show them the fruit of their labors by the profession of faiths we hear within our congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, for our children and youth that have confessed Christ already. May that confession and profession be made great, solid in your sight. That as they grow, their assurance of salvation will be ever more solidified within our own context, but also within their own lives. Be with our youth and children, O oh Lord, but also be with Joanne Ostendorf. As she continues to heal, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be merciful to her, that the surgery she had but a few weeks ago would be the last. And not only that, O oh Lord, that she would regain strength here today. O oh Lord, be gracious to the Ossendorf family. Give them hope today and give them strength, O oh Lord, for tomorrow. Also be with Mr. Virgil. O oh Lord, we miss him in our presence and we know that recovery is slow. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give him comfort and peace, that you'd give him strength where needed, that his caretakers, O oh Lord, you'd bless them in their service to him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd care for him now by your angels, but also by your spirit. Be with Mr. Virgil as he recovers and grant him peace and wellness. It's in all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. This, mo this morning we are moving on from the temptation narrative. Maybe that is a delight since we have spent the last two weeks in the same text. and We do not have a third. These don't come in threes. And so that is a grace to you. We are moving on, though, to Jesus being rejected by his own kind, by his own people, from his hometown. Jesus perhaps leaves the wilderness narrative in triumph and victory. He has conquered the devil. And now he goes throughout all the region of Galilee in order to preach his gospel. He has conquered Satan. And now he will show the world that he has conquered Satan by the message he brings first to his countrymen, but then, as we'll see even in this passage, to those throughout the whole world. Stand now in reverence and awe as we hear from Luke chapter 4, picking up in verse 14. <clears throat> and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are 
oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me to this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. What we have heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Here ends our gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am just about four hours south of my own hometown, and it is always difficult to go back to my own hometown. I do enjoy catching up and seeing friends that I hadn't seen in quite some time, but it's hard to escape the mold of who they remember Scott Edberg is. They go back to decades-old material, thinking I am that same person that had left for the South ten years prior. They still see perhaps a heavy metal skateboarder if I go far enough back. Perhaps my college friends see a slummy-looking college student wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts every day. Perhaps that would be jarring to this congregation, as you might think I'm a little too tidy at times. But they view Scott Edberg through old lenses. And those old lenses often paint an inaccurate picture. They paint an inaccurate picture. They, they, they fail to see how the South can change a man. Four years in the Mississippi Delta where Reagan is still president changes a man. It changes a man. I hang up my purple button-ups and bought white shirts traded in my ties for bow ties, the South changes a man. And sometimes it is jarring. When I go up, they'll say, Scott, you clean up well. And I think, this is all I ever wear these days, but I clean up well. Jesus faces some of this when he visits his own hometown. They still view him through the lenses of his childhood, his upbringing. He was, after all, Joseph's carpenter son. They view him in light of the past. They view him in light of who he was. But as he comes to Nazareth, as he goes into their synagogues to preach this gospel, in some ways he is a new man. He's not changed in nature, but he is now coming with a revealed call to ministry. He comes with a renewed spirit, 
ready after he has slain the devil to preach and teach the gospel of himself. To share with them the good news that as he himself comes into the world, the world will now be forever changed. And at first, the people of Nazareth find this as great news. Our own hometown boy has grown up, and in him growing up, he will save Israel. He will save us first in Nazareth, then he will save all the country. But to their dismay, Jesus turns this on its head. And in the midst of his preaching, he says, this gospel ain't for you. Think of the difficulty. They think that as they have their own homegrown son, he says, what is a prophet in his own town but rejected? This gospel, as he says here, is being withheld. Withheld like rain in the droughts of Israel during those famines. Withheld like those who have leper spots in Israel. It is withheld. But who does it go to? It goes to all of the world. Though may not hear, it goes through all the world. This angers the people of Nazareth because they thought salvation was all about them. You see, they have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Jesus says this gospel isn't for you. And how do they respond? Well, if it isn't for us, we'll kill you. The church can be like that sometimes. We can be like the people of Nazareth. We become good old boy clubs, country clubs, where we ourselves become the gatekeepers of the gospel. If you don't look like us, if you don't sound like us, if you don't have the same professions or socioeconomic status, I don't know if you're welcomed here. The cultural divides that we can find within our own churches can become like the Nazarites. The gospel is for me, but not for thee. But what we are reminded by Jesus here is that the gospel is both for the rich, it's for the poor. It's for those of every ethnic variety. It is for engineers, as we have many here, but also politicians. It's for men and women. It's for Democrats, as well as Republicans and independents. It is also for those within the LGBT community. The gospel is sent forth to the nations. It's for all. And that is what Jesus seeks to show us today. It's not just for me, but the gospel is for thee. The good news comes then, as the main point here, to even the undesirable. The gospel comes even to the undesirable. My, my first idea in building off of that is Jesus comes to save the most needy people. That is the passage he re- reads out of Isaiah in verse 16 and going on. And he came to Nazareth, and when he was been brought up, It was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set liberty to who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord, the Lord's favor. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that he has been preaching to all on the countryside of Galilee, Capernaum, and beyond. This is that gospel, and it has been received well around the countryside. It's been received wholly by those who have heard it, but not here in Nazareth. We see that Jesus 
comes to save even the most undesirable people in our society. The poor here. Don't think of those who are just spiritually poor. The poor here is true economic impoverishment. Those who are marginalized. It is those who are outcasts within our society. They were the societal losers of the day. It was those who had no resources. They had no security. They had no honor. They had no power. They were the true marginalized. Jesus is saying that this gospel is for them. Those who their only recourse in life was to go to God. And God shows them, yes, I will come to you. That is who the poor are here. It was the disciples themselves. The disciples who had very little skill as they were many just fishermen. But they were also undesirables. The tax collectors. Think the harlots, the women of the night. Who did Jesus preach to? Who did Jesus heal? He healed the beggars, the common, the lowly folk. He almost often regularly ignored those who were in the higher echelons of society. In my household growing up, and maybe you've said this in your own household, Jesus helps those who help themselves. That was a popular phrase I heard in my own home. Jesus will help those who help themselves. It's categorically incorrect, and hopefully my parents will forgive me for calling them out today. Uh, But Jesus comes to help those who can't help themselves. He comes for the man that is on the mat that hasn't moved in quite some time without some help. He comes for those who cannot see the forest for the trees. He comes to help you and me. In the gospel that he preaches out of Isaiah, he shows there are three pictures of the types of people he has come to preach to. He comes to preach to those who are poor, or four, I guess, those who are poor, those who are beggars. He comes to save those who are in prison. He comes to send the captive free those who are in most certain peril and death. We see this on the cross as Jesus is dying amongst thieves and insurrectionists. He comes to save those, set them free. He comes to save those who are physically blind and those who are oppressed. You see the whole gambit of the undesirables that he has come to save. And the first council of Nicaea in 325 as the church gathered to make Christianity in some ways the doctrine and church of the land, as those folks gathered after a century of, of just terrible persecution, they came as undesirables. Some didn't have eyes, others didn't have arms, some had to have walking sticks because their legs were irreparably harmed. It was a real broken crayon kind of box. It was the most undesirable people. It was an unsightly and uncomfortable council. As you could see the scars on every commissioner there. Imagine if I went to a general assembly and and saw that. I would be movably shaken by the sight. But that is who the Lord has come to save. His ministry, his preaching ministry, is for those who are weak. Those who are in prison, those who are blind, those who are impoverished, whether it be physically, mentally, intellectually, psychologically, or even spiritually. The Lord comes to those 
are downcast and lowly. He comes to people like you, to people like me, to those who are imprisoned and blind. Notice in that last verse, in verse 16 of this point, that he promises with the Lord that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is that coveted jubilee. You've read it in the Old Testament often. Every 50 years, there would be a time of restoration in the land where all debts would be settled. Those who were slaves would be set free. All wrongs would be made right. It would be a great reset within the country itself. The Lord himself is saying, here in my life, through my work, through all that I do, this is that jubilee that was promised. Ironically, in the scripture, there is no example of the Israelites ever fulfilling the 50-year jubilee. Though it is written profusely in the book of Moses on how to do it and what to do, the Israelites could just never do it. It was too difficult, too hard. How are we going to go back and get our own property back from century of 50 years ago? How can I let all my slaves and captives free? How can we uh, make right those who have accidentally killed someone and now let them roam in our land again? They just couldn't do it. It was unfathomable as unfathomable as it is in our own time. Could you imagine a year of jubilee in America? The, the, the absolute transformation and upheaval that would cause. They just couldn't do it. It's hard. But for you and me, the grace is that the Lord himself offers himself as jubilee. He offers himself as healer. In verse 20, after Jesus reads this monumental text, after everyone sits down, he goes and sits, and everyone has their eyes fixed on him. In the gospel age, in this time, in the New Testament church, worship looked a little different, not too different, actually. They gathered, they sang psalms, they read the scriptures, they expounded them, they gave tithes and offerings. It's very emblematic of the simplicity we offer here but one difference that we see in this passage is after everyone stood, as we do at Providence and heard the reading of Scripture, the pastor would go and sit down. He'd go and sit down, and then he would preach. He'd preach from a stool. Uh, he would not preach standing behind a pulpit, but from a stool. And that is what Jesus did. After he had read the Scriptures, you might find it odd that he went and sat down. Why was he sitting down? Well, he was about to give them his message. He was about to preach. He was about to preach like any ordinary preacher would. He may not have three points like good Presbyterians, but he did bring a message to them, and that message was that I am the jubilee that will end all jubilees. I am here to restore you. I'm here to make right. I'm here to return to you. I'm here to reset everything. It was a simple, it was a very simple message. He says, I've come to fulfill all of this. That word fulfill, as you look down in the passage, is in the perfect tense. And I don't like to get into grammar and sermons, but the perfect tense is, is special. And that what Jesus is saying, what I've done today, has ongoing consequences for all of time. Yes, it is filled today, but it has continual impact for the rest of your lives. Jesus is saying, it is fulfilled today. That if you accept me as your Savior, what happens today 
has ongoing consequences. That year of Jubilee is not just for today, but it is for the rest of your lives as you look to me. And it is even greater because after your lives, it is eternal. And that you will join that year of Jubilee for all eternity. That is the promise for you. If you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, is your life going to be perfect and sweet? No. But you have a jubilee. You have a great day of rest, a great restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ today and forevermore. That is what I promise you. That's what Jesus promises you as well. That on that day when you see him face to face, you will now have the greatest taste of that jubilee ever. As you will join him in great celebration. It is a bold promise that Jesus has here. It must have been jarring to the people in some regard where he says, it is fulfilled in me before you. It's a great promise. It's a great promise that the Lord comes to a lowly people. I would have imagined that as Jesus preached this text, they were just so giddy and happy, at least for the first half of the sermon. They were thinking, this is the Messiah. You see, they knew Joseph's line. And they could have done all the Dutch bingo, as I would call it, to figure out who he was connected to. Dutch bingo, for those who are uninitiated, is in a Dutch church at an elders meeting at least, but also throughout. When you'd hear the name of someone, you would trace their lineage. I could use my wife as a humble example. She is Marissa Smith, daughter of Clarence, or aunt of, uh, of uh, Aaliyah. Her uncle is Martin. One of her sisters married one of those Dornboss boys. This is Dutch bingo. You do it at every meeting. In the South, they did something similar because of the small town nature. This is what they're doing. They have, a, they have a town that is half the size of Hamel. And as they are, they are hearing this good old boy preach the gospel, they know, they know like you and I know, that he is a son of David. And that what he promises is no small promise. Is this the Messiah that I have heard in the scriptures all my life? He has all the right lineage. He comes from all the right towns. It is great news. That's why they say, is this Joseph's son? You might think that it's negative, but it's positive. They are excited by the news as they do their own Hebrew bingo. They figure it all out. They're excited. That is the good news offered to you today as you are needy. The good news comes to the undesirable. First, Jesus saves the most needy people, you and I. But there are two responses that we could have to this gospel message, and we see both in this passage, and that's where point two and three come from. For first, for some, this news leads to worship. When you hear the gospel, for some, this news leads to worship. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. How did the people surrounding Galilee receive the Lord Jesus Christ? They received him with triumphant praise. Jesus, as you may expect, after going toe-to-toe with the devil without food for 40 days, might leave the wilderness in an impoverished state. But no. What we see in verse 14 is that as Jesus leaves the wilderness, he does so returning in the power of the Spirit, the dynamos. He is ready to preach after a good meal. 
he goes on his way and he begins to do what he was called to do. It must have been so exciting. He has waited all his life for this ministerial point to start. He's empowered by the Spirit. And that power of the Spirit is experienced by all in Galilee. He goes to their synagogue. Synagogues are probably kind of like how we worship here today. They didn't have their own buildings for the most part, unless you were in one of those nice towns like Jerusalem, maybe Capernaum. They met in schools and homes. They would reorganize and refabricate a space that would be prepared to worship. They were like houses in many regards. It'd be like coming to Pastor Scott's house and we set in, setting up shop to worship our living God. They gathered in the synagogues. Jesus went to all these synagogues throughout Galilee and preached and all glorified his name. He was not a publicity hound like we might see in our own media today. He was not an influencer. He came with a mission, and that mission was to preach Christ. They gathered together. He was somewhat like in the first great awakening of like a George Whitfield, who would go throughout all the country, itinerant preaching the gospel of Christ. J.C. Ryle, when summing up Whitfield's ministry, would say, the facts of his history are almost entirely of one of, of one complexion. One year was just like any other, and the attempt to follow it would only show you the same picture over and over again. For 30 years, from 1770 onward, for 31 years, he had one uniform employment, and that was to preach Christ. It was his master's business. From Sunday morning, as Ryle would say, to Saturday, to Saturday nights, from January 1st to December 31st, except laid aside by illness, he almost incessantly preached Christ through the whole world, entreating all men to repent of their sin so that Christ would come and save. Jesus, George Whitfield, had a great Savior. Jesus was the greater George Whitfield in many regards, and that's the gospel that he came to preach. And many received that good news with great joy as they declared the glory of God. They said, yes, the Messiah that we have long awaited has now entered Galilee. For hundreds of years we waited for him, and now he is here with us. May we be like the countryside of Galilee at Providence Presbyterian. May we, may we be, as we hear the gospel of Christ, glorify his name in joy. The Messiah is here, and he has come to save me. The resurrected Messiah has come and saved you and me. The church is not for those who have it all together, as we all know. Your pastor is a sinner, your elders are sinners, your deacons are sinners, your eminently great women's council, they're all sinners too. We're all sinners. We're not perfect. The gospel is not for those who are perfect. It is for those who recognize their weakness and the people of Galilee who are recognizing their weakness. They recognize their impoverishment. They recognize that they were disenfranchised and they were ready to receive Christ. But, as I just alluded to, for others, this news is met with hostility. Yes, some, this news leads to worship, but to others, this news leads to hostility. We see this start to manifest itself halfway through Jesus' sermon in verse 23 when he says, Doubtless you will quote me in this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. What we have heard 
you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. He tells them, you will not accept me. Though you enjoyed the first half of this sermon, you will not enjoy the second half. And that is because as you hear this gospel, your hearts will not be softened as we read in Hebrews today. They will be hardened as we heard perhaps in Jeremiah. They'll be wayward. You will hear the gospel today and you will realize that it is not about you because you have and will reject it. It must have been even a greater thorn in the Israelites' sides here in Nazareth as Jesus would dig it in by giving the example of, uh, of the passages that he reads. I tell you, as Jesus says, there will be many widows in Israel in that day of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up for six years, did Jesus go to Israel to cure their famine? No. He went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. He went to the Gentiles. But what else? Though there were great disease and lepers in the land, where did Elijah go? He didn't go to heal the Israelites. He healed Naaman the Syrian. The unredeemable, as we've already heard. Those who should not have salvation are the ones who the Lord promises salvation to here. He doesn't come for the proud people of Nazareth. He comes for the weak people in and throughout all the world. The gospel is preached here first in Israel, but he knows that those in Nazareth will not accept it. And this sows great contempt from the people of Nazareth. What do they do? I mean, it, it's so jarring. At one moment, they are singing his praises. We are so happy that you have finally come to us, Messiah. And the moment he says, well, you won't believe me. They don't believe him. They show that it is true. We will kill you because you have withheld this gospel from us. Because it is not merely for us. You see, the, Na the people of Nazareth were a proud people. They wanted the gospel to be about themselves. That's what they longed for. They wanted the salvation to come to them first and then to Israel, but to no one else. And Jesus says, no, this gospel is inclusive. It is inclusive because it goes to all of the world, not just to you. And to show you that, I will give you the example found within Scripture in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. The gospel is for all. It is not just about you. It is for the whole world. Imagine the high that Jesus must have left in his ministry as he defeated Satan only to come to his own town and then to be thrown out and rejected. Think of the, the ministerial whiplash. Great success. He's conquered Satan. It seems he has conquered the greater region of Galilee and now his first ministerial setback comes in the way of his own hometown rejecting him. And not only rejecting him, but being filled with with complete and utter wrath. They are so fed up. I mean, it is, it, it's almost imperceptibly confusing to have your own boy, the, the kid that you'd known for all your life, you're ready to kill him at a moment's notice, 
because of the inclusion of all peoples to the message that he brings. Just think of the darkness found within the town of Nazareth at this time. One commentator says, speaking loosely, the crucifixion begins here. The rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah as you would expect, but in Nazareth. Being familiar with Jesus only led to their further demise. May we then, may we be like the world that receives Christ. May we not be like Nazareth. May we not have their sin. Maybe in this one sermon alone, may we be like Sodom and Gomorrah, receiving the gospel that comes to us as a lowly, despicable, and disgusting people. That is who the gospel is for. And this one sermon and this one sermon alone, be like them and not like Nazareth. Because the gospel is for the lowly. But we are tempted in the church to be like Nazareth. We are tempted to be high on our own supply. We are tempted to think we are greater than we are. And that is why this is for us today. We are not to be gatekeepers of salvation, choosing who shall receive the gospel and who shall not. But we should be all-inclusive, the gospel going forth throughout all the nations. Earlier this week, I got an interesting call. I don't get a lot of calls as the pastor of Providence, at least on my church phone. They mostly come through texts and personal calls on my cell phone, which I prefer, actually. Um, But a troubled soul called. uh, A troubled soul called our church twice throughout the past week. Uh, And and if I'm honest with you, I I did not want to call this troubled soul back. Um, they were actually looking for an open and affirming church. Uh, they, I think they themselves um, were in the LGBT community. And I, I just did not want to make the call. I loathed the call. I loathed making the call. And then I had to study this passage. I had to study this passage, and I had to realize I myself was being a gatekeeper. I didn't want to make that call back. And I reluctantly, even on Friday, right before leaving, decided to finally make the call. And, and they, the person didn't answer, unfortunately. And so I, I somewhat went home like, phew, I didn't know where that conversation was going to lead. But I am not to be a gatekeeper of the gospel. I should be delighted at the opportunity to share Christ with the undesirable. Perhaps those who might be undesirable even here. Today, may we not be like the people of Nazareth. May we be like Christ, who brings the gospel not only to the countryside of Galilee, but even to his hometown. We also have a danger, though, as the church, to dismiss Jesus himself. We come and gather. We sing all sorts of songs, right? We are familiar with Jesus. Every single one of us is. We can be tempted that maybe we are thinking too high of Jesus, but truly that's impossible. But we gather We preach about Jesus. We've heard a lot about Jesus today. We sing about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. But all of that form is not enough unless we also recognize that Jesus Christ is God and the Son whom we are saved by. We can't merely leave Jesus in the lower level as the Nazarites did. 
where he is basically a carpenter's son that might be the Messiah. We must elevate him like the Galileans did. We must understand that he is supreme, that his lordship is over all of the creation. We must recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Sometimes we can just go through the motions of church. We finally got to church today. We're going to pray. We're going to give our tithes and offerings. We're going to hear a sermon. We'll stay for Sunday school. We'll go to our fellowship group after. We'll go home, and everything will be normal. We did all the right things. But what we learn also in this passage today is that we must exalt the Christ. We must not leave him carpenter as Joseph's son in the line of David, but we must also recognize that he is the true divine son. And that that's what his gospel brings. That today, this is achieved. What Jesus has read, the gospel for those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are impoverished, those who are in prison, those who are oppressed. This gospel is for you. This is for us. We must recognize that it comes from the power of the divine son who takes on flesh and saves us here today. So whether you be a gatekeeper or a mere fan boy of the Christ, neither are right. We need to properly place Christ as the true Son. The good news comes even to the undesirable. It comes to the undesirable. It comes to the most needy people. And you have two choices here today. For some, you can worship. But for others, you can be hostile and reject. Who are you today? Today, if you hear his voice, as I say also often out of Hebrews, do not harden your heart like the Israelites, but come, confess your sins, and draw to Christ. Let us close in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your joy that in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we, recognizing your divinity, come as your children. Thank you, O Lord, for adopting us And thank you, O Lord, that a needy people such as us could have great and marvelous jubilee such as this. Thank you, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.